Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. I'm pleased to be joined by my next guest, John Feinstein. Of course, you can read him at Golf Digest. You can read him Washington Post. He's got, I believe, 42 books published about sports. John, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, Garrett. Um, small correction, my 43rd book, A Kid's Ministry Called Game Changers, just came out last week. But you did your homework, so I appreciate that. Yes, I've been uh, following you on Twitter. Of course, great follow at Jay Feinstein Books. And, you know, John, I wanted to start with Tom Seaver, I know that you had written about him, of course, the, the Mets famous pitcher. You grew up watching him, listening on the radio. What emotionally, what did that mean to you when he passed away? I know you wrote about it quite a bit, but like as a sports fan and obviously a sports writer now, what did that mean with his passing here? Well, Garrett, um, it was for me personally, uh, as, a, as a fan, it was crushing. Uh, it wasn't a surprise uh, when his family announced uh, in the spring of 2019 that he wasn't going to be able to attend um, the Mets 50th and the 50th anniversary celebration of the Mets 1969 World Series title uh, it was because of dementia. Uh, I knew he was quite sick and I had watched Dean Smith go downhill when he had dementia. So I had a pretty clear idea what that meant. And I knew it was just a matter of time. Dementia is a fatal disease. It, it can take a while, but it is a fatal disease. So the news wasn't shocking in that sense. But you have to understand, I mean, I've known a lot of athletes and coaches. I've covered a lot of them, written about a lot of them. But Tom Seaver was my first boyhood hero. Um, I grew up in New York City. Um, my heroes were Seaver, Willis Reed and Walt Frazier, Joe Namath. Brad Park of the Rangers, who was a star at the time. They were my first heroes. Uh, and Seaver, probably first among them. All those 69 Mets were heroes of mine. And, and Seaver was the franchise. That was his nickname, along with Tom Terrific. And I had the chance to, to get to know him a little and to write about him uh, when I got to the Washington Post. Uh, and meeting a hero can be dangerous because they can disappoint you. They can turn out to not be the great guy you've built them up to be in your mind. Seaver was. Seaver was a great guy. And I'll never forget the first time I introduced myself to him in 1981 when he was playing for the Reds. Uh, and I said, I work for the Washington Post. He looked at me and said, you know Woodward and Bernstein? And I said, well, I worked for Woodward when I was on the Metro staff. Carl left several years ago to get into television, so I don't really know him, but I do know Bob pretty well. And he said, I'll make a deal with you. I'll tell you, I'll give you all the time you want as long as you're willing to answer all my questions about what Not many athletes, Garrett, are gonna, gonna ask that as their first question. Uh, their first question usually is how much time is this gonna take? Uh, and Seaver was terrific, uh, no pun intended. He's very bright. Uh, he went to the University of Southern Cal. He was a reader. 
Uh, and I, I had the, the honor of covering his 300th win in Yankee Stadium in 1985. And as I wrote in the column, I, I, I wrote about him in the Washington Post last week. Uh, when the game was over, back in those days, no interview rooms, thank God. Um, right. He stood in front of his locker, answered all questions from everybody, told a couple great stories. And I waited until everybody had cleared out. And I was on deadline, so it wasn't the smartest thing to do. And I did the single most unprofessional thing I've ever done. I said to him, Tom, I know this is unprofessional, but I've been watching you pitch since I was 10 years old. Would you mind signing my scorecard? And he looked at me and smiled and said, what would Woodward say about this? And uh, before I could answer, he grabbed the scorecard and he wrote, John, glad you were here for this. Best wishes, Tom Seaver, 300th win, August 4th, 1985. And that, that, that scorecard is right behind me in the drawer of my desk to this day. To this day. And the, the kicker to the story is when I wrote that, I got a note the next day from Woodward saying, Woodward's answer would be, he would always support anything you do. Um, admire, I admire, you know I admire you and you know I consider you a friend. And that meant a lot too. But Tom's death was crushing for me. Oh, I'm sure, man. And, and as you just de described there, you're, you're such a storyteller. You talked about the exact words that he told you when, you know, when you had asked him for that autograph. You remember exactly what he said. And you're a words guy. I want to ask you, when you have approached, or when people have approached you and said, I love your work, John, I, I just love it. And you remembered what they said verbatim, what people really stick out. Because I know for me in my young golf career, it's guys like Randall Chambly or Jim Nance saying, great job on that story on Patrick Reed when he was a rookie. You're, you know, you're ahead of the curve with him. So that's my story. But for you, John, there's so many people you've met in, in your career, decades, who really stands out with, with those big moments that have talked to you uh, that stick out? Well, I tend to remember first, Garrett, the guys who've offered to punch me out uh, for what right. I've written. Fortunately, it's a fairly short list. But uh, for me, a lot of it is, is, is when colleagues uh, say they admire your work. Uh, obviously, having Bob Woodward as a mentor, a teacher, and a friend for all these years mattered greatly to me. I still remember when I wrote uh, Season on the Brink. And I, I, I got the first two pre-publication copies of the book from my editor uh, before a playoff game in New York between the Mets and the Houston Astros. And uh, there were, he gave me two copies. I kept one to give to my parents. And I gave the other one to Dave Kindred, who I worked with for years at the Washington Post and who's been, who was a mentor then and who's been a colleague and friend for 40 years. And Dave knew Bob Knight probably as well as anybody in the media. And I said, we were all flying to Houston for game six the next day. And I said, if you want to, maybe you could read a little bit of this and tell me what you think. And he said, sure. And the next day he uh, came up to me, we we're now in the press box in Houston. And he said, I want you to know, uh, I didn't read a little of the book last night. And I went, okay, fine, you know, we're all on the road. He said, I stayed up and read the whole thing. I couldn't put it wow. down. And you should be very proud of what you've done here. This is a great book. Uh, and coming from Dave, that meant, I mean, I, I got a lot of compliments about Season on the Brink and loved them all. Uh, but that one being the first one and coming from Dave uh, had great meaning for me. But whenever somebody, it doesn't matter whether it's 
somebody I bump into at a swimming pool or somebody at a game or um, the father or mother of uh, one of my daughter's uh, classmates, all the compliments are great. People sometimes say to me, you must get tired of hearing this. And I go, no, I never get tired of hearing it. It, 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 it. It's a validation of what you do, no matter who it comes from. And uh, I, 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 so the, the answer is I enjoy it whenever it happens, regardless of who it comes from. But those from uh, colleagues, people I respect, uh, who do the same thing I do, and, and thus have an understanding of what went into writing the book or writing the column, whatever it might be, are most important. And you probably do this too. When I'm reading a book, I try to envision what the reporter, what the writer went through to get this information to me. Because I feel like I've been through at least some of it and I'm trying to envision how I would have handled that situation. It's one way I think you get better is if you figure out what guys do to, to write something that's good. But it's, it's, always, um, it's always nice when people seem to understand what you had to do to get a book done. Definitely. And when I think about your body of work, as we shift maybe towards golf here for a minute, uh, think about, you've always talked about how you love this to the reader to, to read your article or your book and say, wow, I didn't know, I did not know that. Right. For you, when it comes to golf, what story or book really stands out as, you know what, I feel so good about people not knowing that yet. Well, you know, it, 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 I don't want to say it's easy uh, to write things about stars um, that people don't know, because it's not. Um, frequently, they, they don't like to give of themselves, Tiger Woods being the primary example. Um, but my, I think my greatest joy when I wrote A Good Walk Spoiled, which was my first golf book, uh, I, this was pre-Tiger Woods. And I, but I wrote about the, the stars of the game at the time, Nick Price, you'll never meet a nicer human, Greg Norman, who was always very good to me, um, Davis Love, Fred Couples, people like that. Um, but the, the guy people brought up to me after the book came out all the time was Paul Goidos. And Paul at the time, when I first met him, was a rookie on the tour in 1993. He'd been a school teacher uh, after college and eventually played his way onto the Hogan, what was then the Hogan tour and the, the PGA tour. And the first, I've only told this story a million times, but the first time I met Paul was at the Buick Open uh, in 1993. He shot 66 the first day. He was the only guy who went low in the afternoon. Uh, Larry Mize and Greg Norman had both shot 64 in the morning. And of course, they're inextricably linked because of the 87 Masters. So that was going to be what everybody was writing. But Chuck Adams, who was the on-site PGA Tour official, decided to bring Paul into the interview room just to give him the experience, to see what it looked like, felt like. And there might have been six or seven of us in there. I went in there because I had nothing else to do. I was waiting to meet Billy Andrade for dinner that night. And I walked in the back. And the first thing I ever heard Paul Goido say was, I'm sure most of you have never heard of me. There's a reason for that. I've never done anything. And I immediately said, I got to meet this guy. This guy has a sense of humor. Um, and so when he was done, I introduced myself to him and told him I was writing a book about life on the PGA tour. And could we sit down at some point and talk? And Paul looked at me and said, 
I'll give you all the time you want, but you're wasting your time. Nobody's going to buy a book about the PGA tour. And of course it ended up being the best selling sports book ever. Um, and I joke with Paul to this day that I'm very glad he's my friend and not my agent. Um, but the number of people who latched on to his story, he was kind of an everyman. Paul's not Paul's five foot nine. He weighs, I don't know what he weighs today, but he, he's not exactly built like a bodybuilder. Um, he's got this sort of ordinary looking golf swing, but he can really play, he can get the ball in the hole. He won twice on tour. He's won four times on the senior tour. Um, Almost and, won the 2008 Players Championship against Sergio at the Long Beach State hat. Yep, the, the, the dirt bags, the 49er dirt bags. But don't remind me about that. It's still too painful. Um, nothing against Sergio, who I like very much. But uh, it was uh, ha having people when – I, when I wrote my book, uh, The Majors, I started it with a true story about my old friend Terry Hansen, who once worked for the PGA Tour, uh, being on an airplane flight in the morning. And – he noticed the guy next to him reading the golf agate and he looked over at him. And he said, so how did Goidos do? And the guy said, how did you know I was looking for Goidos? And he said, well, I figure if you're a big enough golf fan to read the agate, you probably read a good walk spoiled. And if you read a good walk spoiled, you're a fan of Paul Goidos. And he was exactly right. So that, that was, that was very gratifying. No, no doubt about it. Definitely. Yeah. There's, there's so much, uh, I love what you said about the stories of, of Paul being so relatable. I mean, this guy's going to laugh at himself. He doesn't care. Um, well, he always called himself the worst player in the history of the PGA tour, which he the, clearly was not and is not. Wow. Um, self deprecating. I think I can think of other guys like Robert Streb is just like that today. I know he doesn't have the same kind of following as Goidos. When I think about you and your golf career and where you've come from, of course, New York, we're looking ahead to next week at the U.S. Open, Wingfoot. You were there covering it in 2006. Phil, of course, coming so close. What images and moments for you, whether in the media center or talking to Phil afterwards, what really stands out from that 2006 U.S. Open, John? Well, the way almost everybody collapsed on the 18th hole. Um, people forget Colin Montgomery totally chunked a seven iron from the middle of the fairway uh, when a par would have put him in a playoff and a birdie would have won. Uh, and, but of course people will, people forget. I mean, if you were to walk up to the average golf fan and say, who won the 2006 U S open at Wingfoot, most of them will say, well, that was the one Mickelson lost as opposed to that was the one Jeff Ogilvy won because Jeff was in the locker room when he won. But what, what, always blows my mind about it isn't just that he hit driver on the 18th tee which was clearly a mistake especially given his history with the driver but the second shot it was the second shot that I still to this day I can see it in my mind's eye what was he thinking I mean if he if he just chips it back on the fairway he's 100 yards from the green as good as he is from 100 yards in there's a reasonable chance he'll make par from there and win worst case He's in a playoff. He's going to make bogey and be in a playoff. Worst case. But he had to try to go for the green, a 101 to one shot. We all know what happened. He ends up making double bogey and accurately called himself an idiot, which I credit him for because right. he, he didn't make excuses. I love athletes who don't make excuses because we all screw up in life. We all make mistakes, whether it's physical mistake, mental mistake, emotional mistake. And Phil just stood there and said, I can't believe what an idiot I was. And he's right. He was. Um, so those are my memories. And, and the other thing I think about, Wingfoot's such a great golf course. It's such a great golf 
course. And I, my most distinct memory of Wingfoot is the 97 PGA, which was Davis Love's one major victory. And Davis is someone I've been friends with since, since I wrote A Good Walk Spoiled and who's one of the truly good people in sports. I mean, just a good person under the definition of the words gentleman, gentleman, is a picture of Davis. And his, his win there with the rainbow over his shoulder when he made the last putt on 18, everybody thinking about his dad, um, was, was very emotional. As reporters were supposed to stay back and be quote unquote objective, I don't believe there's any such thing as objective reporting, we all have biases. We all have people we like, people we dislike. Sometimes you're rooting for the story, but you always have a bias. And what you have to do is recognize the bias and understand it and say, even though I don't especially like Tiger Woods, he is, in my opinion, the greatest golfer in history. And no, no disrespect to Jack Nicklaus, but when Tiger was at his dominant best, he did things nobody's ever done, including Jack Nicklaus. And so I respect that. I will always write that and say that, but the flip side is I don't like the way Tiger's handled his personal life a lot, and I don't buy this new Tiger bit that so many in the media have bought into. I think he's the same guy. He's just a little, a little more publicity conscious. Uh, I'm still waiting for him to sit down and do a one-on-one -on -one with a real print reporter with real questions and no restrictions. Uh, it's been, I, don't, I think the last time that happened was when I had dinner with him in 1998. 98. Okay. 22 years. We're still yeah. waiting, Tiger. Come on. Okay. Speaking of Tiger and, and bias, there are so many golf fans listening to this podcast and be watching the U.S. Open next week that are going to be cheering for Tiger. Are going to yes. be the reason why they're watching it. So for you, what do we expect out of Tiger and what does he have to do to get to a point where he's going to be able to win next week? Play well. Um, but the, th the thing about Tiger Woods, when he was dealing with all the injuries and, and the issues uh, and a lot of people wrote him off, said he was done. And I was, of course, asked the question, is Tiger Woods done a zillion times? If I had a dollar for every time I was asked the question, I wouldn't have to work anymore. Um, but my answer was always the same. You never count out the elite of the elite. And no one in golf history has been more elite than Tiger Woods. Jack Nicklaus won the Masters when he was 46, six years after he'd won his previous major, when he'd been counted out by almost everybody. Uh, Tiger Woods won the Masters in 2019 after being counted out by a lot of people. Uh, other sports, you know, I, again, Tom Seaver at the age of 40 pitched to an ERA of 2.80 in Chicago. Uh, you, you, can, you can pick out a, somebody in, in just about every sport. Um, even Michael Jordan, when he made that kind of sad comeback with the Wizards, he wasn't Michael Jordan. He weighed about 30 pounds more than when he played for the Bulls. Um, people referred to those two years as his fat Jordan years. He was still an all-star. He just wasn't Michael Jordan. And Tiger Woods isn't Tiger Woods, never will be again. He's almost 45. But can he find lightning in a bottle for four days the way he did at Augusta in 2019? Sure. I, I mean, I, I never count him out. Uh, he's too great a competitor. Um, he's too great a player to ever be counted out. Now, would I count him as the favorite to win the Open? No, but when is everybody really a favorite in a major championship? Other than Tiger in his dominant stage when he won seven majors out of 11, if you take one player, you pick any player you want, in, including Dustin Johnson, who's as hot as you can be right now, and say, I'll, take, I'll give you him or I'll give you the field. You're going to take the field. Uh, it, that's the way golf is. It's not like tennis. 
where if, if, you give, if you give me three picks, let's go back before this year. In the last 10 years, in any men's tennis tournament, I'm going to pick Nadal, Djokovic, or Federer, and I'm going to be right almost every time. In golf, if you give me three picks in any major championship, I'll probably be wrong unless I get lucky. So who will win at, at you know, that's why when I, when I had a radio show and my bosses always wanted me to make picks, pick games, pick major championships, pick, you know, who's going to win the Super Bowl in September. I said, no. A, I thought it was a waste of time. Who cares what I think? But B, if I got it right, it was only because I was lucky. And if I got it wrong, yes. it wasn't because I suddenly didn't know anything about sports. It was because the beauty of sports is we really don't know what's going to happen next. Yet there's such a fixation now with fantasy sports and betting about, oh, hey, I called it. I think it goes back to a male thing. I called it. I want to say that I called it going into that week. And right. Yeah. It, and, it gets and, nauseating. And especially now with these so-called fantasy websites that are really gambling sites. I was offered, uh, someone uh, came to me recently and offered me the chance to have one of these um, fantasy gambling websites sponsor something I've been working on. And I said, no, it'd be hypocritical of me. First of all, I have no interest in, in, in fantasy. And second, I'm against it. I mean, I, I don't think the NBA should let Michael Jordan own a percentage of DraftKings, I just, especially given his past in gambling. But nobody really cares what I think about that. <laughs> I hear you there. You did talk about Dustin Johnson, though, for talking about favorites for the U.S. Open. Right. Tell me your perspective on DJ after coming off of his first FedEx Cup, FedEx Cup victory here just a couple days ago. What, what do you expect from him? Well, I, I mean, I would expect that he will continue to play well. I mean, he's in one of those streaks. Um, what is he, two, one, one, two, two, one, two, one in his last four events, I think. Um, he won in Hartford. He was T2 at the PGA. He won in Boston. He was second uh, in uh, Chicago. Chicago and then won the Tour Championship, although he didn't really win it. Yeah, he Xander won it. Third, and, and, you know, and that, that's, that just talks about the ridiculous system the tour has that makes it impossible for me to take the playoff seriously. Um, if they want to call it a playoff, make it a real playoff, start everybody at zero, give more money to the regular season winners or top 10, top 20, whatever, give them more money for what they accomplished in the regular season. And then like in every other sport, start everyone at zero. You don't start the Super Bowl with the team of the better record up 10, nothing. You know, you don't start a best of seven series in hockey, basketball, or baseball with one team up one nothing. You, you, you start over. It's postseason. It's a different season. The tour's never been willing to acknowledge that because they're afraid they might lose the stars before Atlanta. You know, TV screams about And by the way, Tiger Woods hasn't made Atlanta eight of the last ten years. So it hasn't done them much good because Tiger's the player they care about the most. We all know that. Phil's second most. Didn't make it out of the first playoff event this year. Um, but – Clearly, regardless, Dustin's very hot. He can play any golf course because he's so long and he's, he, his short game is very underrated. Um, so, but here, here's, this is where it becomes interesting to me, Garrett. Um, the last time he was this hot was in the spring of 2017 when he'd gone 3-1-1-1 going into Augusta and was as prohibitive a favorite as anybody had been since Tiger Woods' heyday. And then he slipped on the steps, never teed it up. 
Right. Now, I don't expect him to be knocked out of the open by a fluke accident. But here's the thing. He's got 23 wins in his career. He's a Hall of Famer right now. If he woke up this morning and said, nah, I'm done playing golf, just want to hang out with my kids, he goes in the Hall of Fame on the first ballot. But, and I wrote a column about this last year before the Masters, actually. So we're now five majors later. And what I said was there are Hall of Famers, and then there are all-caps Hall of Famers, and then there are guys who are above all-caps Hall of Famers. And the guys above all-caps Hall of Famers are Woods, Nicholas, Hagen, Palmer, partly because of his contributions to the game, Watson, Player, and that might be the list. Okay? And then there are all-caps Hall of Famers. That would be Faldo, Ballesteros, Mickelson, um, maybe McElroy and Kepka, but we'll you know, see how their careers – they're only 30 years old, 30 and 31, um, so we don't know yet. But there are those guys – Mickelson and the others that I just mentioned. I'm leaving out a couple of Hogan, of course, Sneed. Hogan's probably above all caps, but Sneed's all caps, Byron Nelson, they're all caps. And then you have Hall of Famers like Tom Kite, Davis Love, Curtis Strange, Fred Couples, guys who won one or maybe two majors in a bunch of tournaments. That's where Dustin Johnson is right now. He's in Hall of Famers, no caps. Does he have, but he has a chance to get to all caps before he's done. Now he's 36, which isn't young and isn't old for a golfer, especially nowadays when guys play well into their forties. Um, but my question now is, does he become an all caps hall of famer or just a hall of famer? If he finishes with one or two majors, he's just, just a hall of famer. You're still a hall of famer, obviously. And so I'm very curious. We, we're going to, we're going to have six major championships here in the next 11 months. How does Dustin Johnson, where is Dustin Jan Johnson standing uh, at the end of next year's British Open? It's Royal St. George's. I'm very, very curious to, to see, excuse me. Yeah. And to this point has one major championship and it was not when he had the 54 hole lead. Remember Shane Lowry had the 54 hole lead there at Oakmont. Justin Johnson, and I get trouble on Twitter like crazy because I, I knock him for this, the first player ever to blow his first four 54-hole leads in majors. That's a stat that you cannot ignore, in my opinion. John, what's your reaction to that stat about Dustin? Well, again, I think we have a tendency to make too much out of 54 holes. Golf tournaments are 72 holes. I think Greg Norman – in 1986, led three of the four majors after 54 holes and, and won one. Or maybe he led all four and won one. I think it was all four, yeah. Yeah, and he's also, he also has the stat of being the only player to lose a playoff in all four majors. Um, he's a Hall of Famer. Not a Hall of Famer, but a Hall of Famer. And it's funny because I said to him, I, asked, I was asking him once about his frustrations in majors. And instinctively, he tried to, to make it not that big a deal. And he said to me, you know, a lot of great players have never won a major championship. I said, really, name them. And he stopped. And he said, okay, a lot of good players have never won a major championship. And, and that's the dividing line. You know, I, I mean, personally, I don't think Colin Montgomery should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he's a very, he was a very fine player. He won the uh, whatever, the Order of Merit, Order of Merit yeah. seven times before the European Tour was really as good as it is now. But still, that's an achievement. And he was a great Ryder Cup player. But a lot of Ryder Cup is playing with a partner 
not, and I'm not demeaning it. You know how I feel about the Ryder Cup. Um, but who, who, uh, whose record do we take more seriously from 2018? Francesco Molinari, who won all four matches with Tommy Fleetwood and his singles, or Tommy, who won all four of his matches with Francesco and then lost his singles match. So um, I, I think that, you know, I get argued, people argue with this with me all the time, um, that the, if, if winning a golf tournament is worth one point in the Pantheon, winning a major is worth 10 to me. And I think if you went to most players and said, I'll give you one major or I'll give you 10 tournaments, most will take the one major. I mean, Andy Norris done pretty well for himself in life, winning two U.S. Opens and a total of three tournaments. Um, Brooks Koepka is pretty darn good, won four majors, seven tournaments in all. Uh, so I think it's important for Dustin's legacy to win more majors. And it doesn't matter whether he leads it. You know, Tiger Woods, for a long time, the stat on Tiger Woods was he never lost a 54-hole lead in a major. Then he did to Y.E. Yang at Hazeltine in 2009. But he'd never come from behind to win a major on Sunday until Augusta in 2019. I don't think that changes his legacy. What changes his legacy is winning another major. And I think the same is true of Dustin. I got to ask you quickly about when we talk about players going for majors and trying to add to their total, Rory McIlroy, what are we looking at with Rory? Cause I know he's, he's been trending and we know he's been due for a fifth major for a long time. He would certainly tell you that. Um, I think that, that uh, with Rory, it's all about the putter. Um, Rory is as good a ball striker as, as we've seen and in many, many years, uh, he can drive it with anybody. His iron play is, is usually outstanding. The whole thing with him is putting. He doesn't even have to put great to win. If he puts great, he wins by eight shots. He's won two majors by eight shots when he putted great. Uh, if he puts okay, okay to good. If he puts good, puts well, excuse my English, uh, he'll probably win. But uh, I think he's thinking too much. He's thinking too much about his putting. He's changed it mechanically. He's changed teachers. He's changed his mental approach. What he needs to do, in my opinion, and, you know, being the great golf expert that I am in terms of playing the game, is pick one putter, pick one teacher, pick one stance, pick one grip, pick one routine, and just stick to it. And, and if, if he misses 10 cuts in a row, which he won't, stick to it. And I think it'll eventually come around for him. Um, and I also think that the masters has become an elephant in the room for him. Uh, he, ever since he won the British open and had put himself in position to finish off the grand slam. He, I think he's thinking about it too much. I know how much he wants to win the masters. We've talked about it. Uh, I, there's no magic potion you can take to make you not think about that elephant what i what i think needs to happen what i hope will happen because i like rory as much as i do i've often said he'd have made a great son-in-law um (laughs) is he needs to get like he needs to shoot do what he did at congressional uh in 2011 shoot 64 the first day get out in front and then just stay there and leave everybody behind he's capable of that but that may be the way he needs to get it done to get that fifth major, definitely. Yeah, it's worth remembering, Roy just turned 31 in May. Phil Mickelson won his first major when he was 33. At that Masters 2004. Right. 
Sergio, of course, obviously won it. Was it thirty-seven in twenty seventeen? Yeah. He's a different story, though. Every 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 player has their own story. Um, I'm curious, though. Any lasting thoughts as we as we look at to Wingfoot? I, I know it's a place that you know pretty well, but anything else that you're expecting from a week at a U.S. Open at Wingfoot? Well, it's going to be unique because of the lack lack of spectators. Uh, and we, what we saw at the PGA was it it did not affect the quality of play. Uh, the quality of play at Harding Park was terrific. Kerry Haig, as usual, had the golf course set up very well. Uh, there were a few, few too many e- easy holes for me. I mean, I don't mind one drivable par four, but two might be a little too much. Uh, the par fives were all reachable. Wingfoot will be harder than that. The winning score won't be 13 under. Um, it, it'll probably. My guess is, because uh, they did ease up last year at Pebble, Pebble Beach on setup, and the winning score was 13 under. Um, that it'll be between five and 10 under. And that's for Wingfoot. That's very low. Um, I, I think, I think Ogilvy's winning score was five or six under, or was it five oh, or six? Oh, under? It was over. It was over yeah, par. Over. Yeah. See, I don't think we're going to see that again. I don't think the USGA wants that again. Um, they're always happy around even par, but I think it might be a little bit lower than that. And again, I say that without having seen the golf course at all. Will you be out there that week? I know it's nope. going to be tighter uh, with the USGA. See, my thing, Garrett is, it, it, it's pointless for me to go to a golf tournament if I can't talk to the players directly. And I, I don't blame the PGA tour. I don't blame the PGA of America or the USGA uh, for being cautious. We all need to be cautious at this point in time, no matter what the president of the United States tells you. Um, in fact, if he tells you the sun's going to rise in the East, I'd check the West. But um, I, I think I, so I, I understand why our locker room access has been taken away. Our range access has been taken away. Why we can't talk to the players directly when they come off the golf course. Everything has to be done through um, Zoom, like you and I are talking now. Uh, but there's not much point in me driving to Westchester and dealing with the hassles of getting to and from the golf course every day, although they'd be less without fans, uh, to sit in the media center all day and do Zoom interviews. Uh, or maybe occasionally have a chance to do a, a post-round flash area interview. That's not worth the time. I can see everything from here. I can get on Zoom from here. When we get our access back, that's when I'll start going out to golf tournaments again. And I can also, you know, to be honest, I have a lot of guys I can reach by telephone too. Yeah. So as you mentioned, you're cl- close with uh, Davis Love, so many players from over the years. And I wanted to ask you about that. My podcast is called Beyond the Clubhouse. And to me, golf is so much about the lasting friendships we all make from the game. So who really stands out? Who are some some people from your golf career that you really stand out as strong friendships? Well, I, I mentioned Goidos and I mentioned Davis, um, both of whom I, I consider good friends. Uh, I've been close to Tom Watson because of my relationship with his longtime caddy, Bruce Edwards, and the book I wrote, Caddy for Life, about Tom's relationship with Bruce when Bruce was dying of ALS. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. He and I have run uh, a charity golf event since 2005 in Bruce's name to raise money for ALS research. We've raised about $7 million. Um, and Tom has been unbelievable in terms of his being willing to do anything to try and help the cause. Um, uh, David Ferretti is someone I consider a good friend. Um, and, uh, there are a lot of guys on the senior tour because I was out most back in the nineties, uh, after writing a good walk spoiled. So guys like Billy Andre, Jeff Sluman, uh, I mentioned Goidos, Brad Faxon, who's not playing that much. Um, but Fred Couples, 
those are guys I've, I've been close to through the years. Among the younger players, excuse me, uh, Rory comes to mind first. It's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm closer probably as a group to European players right now than to the American players. When I did the Ryder Cup book, obviously I dealt with players from both teams. There's something about the Euros. They're, they're funnier than we are. They just have a better sense of humor than we do. Tommy Fleetwood, um, Justin Rose, uh, Francesco Molinari. Did you ever see the video of Molinari and Fleetwood? Oh, the Mollywood, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the greatest 15 seconds in the history of sports. It's so funny. And I actually did a, uh, a corporate thing in Hartford a couple of years ago. It was with uh, Tommy Fleetwood and um, uh, Patrick Reed. And I, I opened by explaining to the audience about the video, about how it was right the night after Europe won the Ryder Cup and how Fleetwood and uh, Molinari wake up in bed together with the Ryder Cup in between them. And um, Molinari, Molinari says to Fleetwood, Tommy, how, how was that for you? And Fleetwood goes, oh, you know, it, 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 four out of five. Francesco, what about you? And, and uh, I've got it backwards. He, he, Molinari says four out of five. And he says to Tommy, what about you? And he goes, oh, you know, Francesco, he, five out of five. You're a five out of five. And it's a lot funnier than I just told it. You, you, can, you can Google it very easily. But so I started out, my first question to Tommy Fleetwood was, Tommy, could you please explain to all of us how you ended up in bed with Francesco Molinari? And without missing a beat, he said, which time? And Patrick Reed literally fell off his stool. He was laughing so hard, as was everybody in the room. So I, there's a bunch of the European guys that, uh, you know, led by Rory um, and Fleetwood and Justin Rose uh, that I get along with very well. On the U.S. side, I, I've, I've been a fan of Brooks Kepka since he first came back to play from Europe. I, I, he's, I think he's a very good guy, again, with, with a sneaky sense of humor. Um, I, I'm a big Justin, Jordan Spieth fan. I know he struggled the last few years with his golf, but when I first sat down to talk to him, this is kind of an interesting story, before the Ryder Cup book, it was a year out. And by, at that moment, he was the guy in golf. It was 2015. He'd won the Masters. He'd won the U.S. Open. He just missed winning the British Open. And, and this was at the PGA. And um, he had had to postpone sitting down a couple times for legit reasons so when we sat down he said i'm really sorry about postponing those first couple times i said listen jordan it's no problem you're doing me a favor and he looked at me and he said well, aren't you doing me a favor by putting me in your book not many athletes have that attitude and when we finished that first day i said you know i'm going to want to circle back to you uh, as the year goes on and he said, yeah, yeah, here, just take my cell number so you don't have to go through Jay every time. It'll be easier that way. His agent, Jay Danzig. And that's Jordan. You know, Jordan, Jordan doesn't look at himself as being a superstar. Neither does Rory. That's why they're both such good guys. Yeah, and I like what you said about the Euros. That they don't take themselves as seriously, I think, as some of the other American players. I'm not going to name all better their names. They humor than we do, Garrett. They, yeah. And you're right. They don't take, each, take themselves as seriously. And I'll tell you another thing. They're a lot better read when it comes to what's going on in the world outside of golf. Definitely. And, and to, to that point, as we wrap up in this next four or five minutes here, I wanted to ask you some brief questions about the world outside of golf with COVID going on. We got the NFL starting 
this week and we've got college basketball. What, what are you expecting from those sports? Is there going to be a delay? Do you think they'll, they'll hit a snag? What, what do you expect? Well, it, I'll give you the same answer I've given everybody who's asked me that question. I have no idea because I don't think any of us has any idea. We don't know what might force the NFL to stop. Uh, we've seen baseball with only a 60-game season play through teams having to shut down for four or five days or a week. The Cardinals are still some like eight or nine games behind everybody in terms of games played. They're going to have to play like 14 doubleheaders in the last two weeks of the season or something. Uh, and these seven-inning doubleheaders are just ridiculous. I feel like I'm watching – you know, a beer league or something, seven inning games, guy on second base in extra innings. I, I mean, it's just, it's just flat out dumb. Um, but we'll see what happens with football. Uh, I mean, obviously as, as a fan of both pro and college football, I, I, I want to see them play. I want to see them stay healthy. Uh, I, I don't think anybody, uh, particularly in college football and the leagues that are playing really cares about the safety of their players. They just care about the TV money. Uh, I hope there'll be college basketball. I, I, and there's all sorts of talk about how to handle it, whether there should be bubbles for different leagues, bubbles for the postseason. There's still a lot of planning and talking going on. There's an ad hoc committee um, run by Dan Gavitt of the NCAA, who's one of the few competent people who works for the NCAA. Uh, with a lot of major coaches, Shashevsky, Izzo, Roy Williams, uh, Bill Self, Tommy Amaker, others uh, involved. And I think those, I trust those guys to make smart decisions. But the, the real answer, Garrett, is uh, un, until we get to a point where there's a vaccine uh, that works, um, we don't know any of the answers. Definitely. It's a lot of uncertainty. I got to ask you about local golf, at least for where we are in the DMV, uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia. What are some of your favorite public courses in the DMV? I know you don't play a ton, but when do you, yeah. when you do get play? Yeah, I haven't played uh, much golf in, 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 a, in a long time. Mostly I play with my two daughters now uh, when I do play. Um, public court, well, Falls Road, which is right down the road uh, from where I live uh, here in Maryland, uh, it, I think is very underrated. Uh, as a golf course. And uh, my daughter's been taking, my nine-year-old has been taking lessons there this summer. And, and the, the people there just could not be nicer. I mean, they're very careful about the protocols, um, but they, they could not be nicer. Um, had a great, ex have had a great experience there. Uh, I love Reston South um, because I had a hole in one there once. Um, Twin Lakes in Virginia is also very good. My brother had a hole in one there once. I might play there today, actually. There you go. It's a nice golf course. Very nice golf course. I haven't played it for years, but it was a very nice golf course. Um, trying to think what else comes to mind. Um, I, it's been a long time since I played Rock Creek, um, but I, I used to go play it with Bob Woodward, who lives not far from there. And, and um, Bob is, is a hacker, but he loves to play golf. The very first time I ever played with him, this was classic Woodward. Uh, we were playing at Avenel. Um, which is right near where I live. And the second hole is a long par five. And Bob made an 11. And as we were walking off the green, I said, I'm just going to put down eight for you. And Bob went, no, no, no. I made an 11. You have to put down an 11. And that's the way he reports too. He's very exact and very accurate. And I, I, I laugh about that to this day because that's, that's Bob. But those are the ones that come to mind right away. 
And again, as you said, I haven't played a hell of a lot of golf in, in recent years, other than I remembers over at Congressional, which is about two miles from here. And uh, I go and play there with my, my daughter, who's in college, and my nine-year-old daughter, who's actually pretty good. She's, she's got some talent. Well, my older that- daughter might have more talent than I can tell, but since she talks while she's hitting the ball, it's sometimes hard to know. I wonder where she gets that gene from, John. I don't know where. You both my daughters. Occasionally, my wife turns to me and my nine-year-old, and she'll put her hands up and go, one of you has got to stop talking. I can't listen to both of you at the same time. And speaking of that, John, like you, you've covered so much sports, spent so much time on the road, yet you've been able to balance your family life. Every, every time I've seen you at a major, you say, hey, I've got to leave um, on Saturday. I want to be with them on Sunday. You have taken made a lot of sacrifices. Every time I ask you to golf, you're like, no, I got to go swimming with my daughters. So what has that been like? How have you been able to do it, John? It's been hard. Uh, the, I mean, I went through a divorce, Garrett, and, and I, I think my job was certainly part of it. I, I take the blame. I should take the blame. Um, but, and having struck out the first time, although we were married 18 years, uh, I've been very conscious this time around, uh, about making sure not to miss family events, not to miss my daughter's piano recitals, not to miss, uh, things involving my two older kids whenever I can. But anybody who's ever traveled for a living, um, knows the challenges. And that's why I really feel for many of the people who are in the NBA bubble and the NHL bubble because they're separated from their families. I mean, they're staying in perfectly nice places, but they can't, I'm sure they see their families like you and I are looking at each other right now, but that's not the same as, you know, excuse me. I have a friend who works for the NBA who has, has three daughters and he went in the bubble whenever it started in July and he's not going to get out until after the finals rope. That's gotta be brutal. Um, his wife might be enjoying it, but I'm sure his children are. Yeah. John, really good spending time with you here on Beyond the Clubhouse. And uh, always good to talk with you. Always good to see you. Garrett, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. Hey, have a great day. Thanks so much. All right. No worries. Thanks, Garrett. See ya.